If you have your Bible, I hope you do, open it to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 5 tonight, Revelation 5. We're looking at a message called, Worthy is the Lamb. We are going to now shift gears a bit in the book of Revelation and start to look at the scroll, the seven-sealed scroll that is uh, well known to many of you who have studied the Bible. Many of you have heard about the seventh seal. This is a, a picture of something that we think may be close to what John saw, and it is a scroll that has seven seals. And you'll notice that there's four uh, horsemen there, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We'll get into martyrdom, cosmic signs, and then we're going to get into the seventh seal, which I'm going to make a case for is the beginning of the day of the Lord or the judgment of God. And so this is where we're headed. But tonight we are literally going to go to heaven. How many of you want to go to heaven? How many of you want to go now? Cool. I heard somebody say a lot of people want to go to heaven, but they don't want to die. <laughs> so, and, and I totally understand that. But anyway, uh, but we are literally going to go to heaven in this sense. We're going to go up to heaven in Revelation 5 and see one of the more detailed descriptions of what happens in heaven. And it's, it's a glorious text. Uh, in fact, I think we could just stay here, you know, for the next six months and just muse on the beauty of this scene. Uh, it's a bit overwhelming, actually, when you begin to really understand what's going on here and you begin to see the worship of Jesus Christ in the center of all that happens in heaven. But before we go there, let's pray. Father, as we uh, study your word, it's just so beautiful to know that it's inspired by God. And, and many people, you know, have done all kinds of different things today, Lord, fought freeways, maybe have gone through a difficult day or maybe even a difficult season of life. But whatever it may be, Lord, I know that one thing that you do for us is when we are able to stop and move our eyes away from this jungle that we often live in and look up to heaven and see the author and perfecter of our faith and fix our eyes on things above, not the things of the earth, Lord. And it's hard, we confess it, but tonight we're going to get a glimpse into heaven and it's really going to, I pray, cheer our souls and encourage us. And you know, when we think about the position of these chapters, we think about seven churches that were going through their own difficulty, struggles and martyrdom and false teaching and so many more things. And it's even true today, Lord, that your church has to face the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it can be difficult and taxing. But Lord, you are on your throne, and when we get a vision of heaven, I think it puts everything else in perspective. And so let that be true tonight. Let us just kind of lay aside the things that so easily burden and entangle us, and let us run this race with endurance as we refix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we just pray you'll take us where you want us to go tonight. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. We're in Revelation 5 as we move into a message called Worthy is the Lamb. And John says these words as he's already taken us into heaven. Notice in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, And the, uh, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So the door was open in heaven. And then John began to describe the heavenly scene, and he described the one who sat on the throne with refracted colors, luminous, incredible colors like Sardis. And he described an emerald uh, rainbow that was around the throne and something like a sea of crystal. And, and these descriptions that we see in other places in the Bible. 
And now he's going to give us a little bit more detail of this one who sits on the throne with a specific focus. Revelation 5.1, he says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book. Uh, the New King James says a scroll, and I'll explain why the difference in a moment. But uh, the Greek word here for a book or a scroll is biblion. When you hold your Bible, uh, this, this, this book that you have here, biblion or Bible, just simply means book. So this is the Holy Bible because it is the Holy Book. It's actually 66 books, right? But that, is, that word for book here is the same as the word for Bible. It's Biblion in Greek. And, but here it's probably uh, to be rendered scroll because books were not created until the 2nd century A.D. And the book of Revelation was written probably around 95 A.D. So that it, it was written in the 1st century. So there were no books then what did they have well they had scrolls and they would unroll a scroll to read scripture and if you've ever seen uh torah scrolls for example or the dead sea scrolls you have an idea of what this is about so a scroll was uh, something that was wrapped up and then it could be unwrapped and read and the discovery of the dead sea scrolls if you've done any study on that you know, gave us uh, manuscripts of the Old Testament that were a thousand years earlier than the ones that we possessed at that time. And that was discovered in the late 1940s. And so uh, this, is, this is the scroll, and it's in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. We would argue that's the Father. And let me just say out front, uh, just so you don't get confused, that what John is doing is trying to describe spiritual realities in physical terms. Remember, God is spirit. He is not a man. Now, Jesus took on a body, and we'll talk about the implications of that as we look at heaven. But God the Father is essentially spirit. John 4, 24, Jesus gave the only description of his Father. He said uh, he is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in what? In spirit and in truth. So don't get confused when you see these uh, descriptions. What John is trying to do is describe spiritual realities in physical terms. So when you hear scholars, theologians, and pastors say that the Bible uses anthropomorphic terminology, that's just simply a big 50-cent term that means that the Bible does use human terms to try to convey spiritual realities because that's the best we got. That's how we're going to best try to understand who God is. So John describes one who is seated on this throne He's holding something in his right hand. And what we have is human terms to describe spiritual realities. How all of this looks when we get there and how God the Father will look to us and how the Trinity will appear to us re remains somewhat of a mystery. But we're going to get a little bit of insight into this right now. And, I, and as I mentioned, the focus will become, in chapters 5 and 6, this seven-sealed scroll. It will be unrolled and opened and the seals broken one by one in chapters 6 through 8. That's what's ahead of us. And then we'll be going through the seals and talking about those uh, as well. The question that emerges in verse 2 of chapter 5. A strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice said, Who is worthy to open the book or the scroll and to break its seal? So all of a sudden a an angel, a strong angel, maybe Gabriel or Michael, someone in that category, a strong angel, began to proclaim with a loud voice, and he's asking about one who is worthy to open this scroll and to break its seals. Several times in the chapter, 
the question will be asked, one who can look into it, who can see its contents and unroll it as it were. And we'll talk about the meaning of the scroll in a second. But the finishing of the redemption of the world is what is at hand here. Let me explain how this works. So your redemption is done. Your sins were paid for in full at the cross. But theologians say that our redemption still has facets of it that are yet to be completed. And so they put it in, in these terms, and they're pretty easy to remember. It's already and not yet. You might want to write that down because this is going to come up over and over in your Bible. Already and not yet. What's already done is that your sins were paid for in full at the cross. What has not occurred yet is the redemption of your body, i.e. the rapture and the resurrection, namely the resurrection. So Romans 8 uses the, this idea of the redemption of your body. So at some point, even though your soul has been redeemed, your body is going to be resurrected or experience redemption in the future. The down payment for that hope or reality is the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The day of resurrection is yet future to us, so it's an already and not yet. We know it's coming. We know it's been guaranteed. We are saved by the blood of Jesus and yet there's a not yet aspect of our redemption, and that is the resurrection of our bodies, the regeneration of planet Earth, the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ are all not yets. They all fall into the big category of redemption. This is what God is going to do, uh, but they uh, have not yet occurred in full. Uh, take a peek at a few verses. Second Peter, just a few pages back, Peter deals with this and. He says these words, 2 Peter 3, um, and dealing with, you might be asking the question, what's the holdup? Okay, if, if my sins were paid for at the cross 2,000 years ago, what's the holdup? Well, part of the holdup is that God is not willing that any perish, but all come to what? Repentance. If he would have come back in the 1500s, I got news for you. You ain't in the kingdom. If he would have come back for some of you in the 1970s or 80s or even for some the 90s, you aren't a Christian. You're not in the kingdom. So God has fixed a day when he will judge the world, Acts 17, 30, and 31. And here's what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 3. He says, know this, 2 Peter 3, 3, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts. And they will be saying... Where is the promise of his coming or his second coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire. This is the day of the Lord's judgment kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men, those who reject Jesus Christ. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. 
and the earth and its works will be burned up, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Why does God, what's the holdup, you might ask? Why does God allow people to mock and joke about the second coming? Because more and more people are being swept into the kingdom. And for me, it's been in the last several decades that I became a Christian. became a Christian in my early 20s. For some of you, you have been a Christian for six months or a year. Some of you may be even uh, just considering the claims of Jesus Christ. And so God is patient. In the book of Luke, uh, Jesus describes these last days. And uh, if you turn there, Luke 21, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The setting of Revelation 5 is set in the context of the kinsman redeemer. If you happen to be attending here on Sundays, we're going through the book of Ruth and looking at this idea of the kinsman redeemer. We'll talk about that in a second. But Jesus, as he describes the last days in Luke 21, uh, verse 25 says these words. There will be signs, 21:25 of Luke, in sun and moon and stars. Upon the earth, dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear at, and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, Jesus is speaking, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, this is a glory cloud, with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because what's coming? Your redemption is drawing near. Now, when scholars begin to look at this idea of redemption, you can write down for your notes Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, where we have the pledge of the Holy Spirit with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Write down Ephesians 4.30, where it says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The second coming of Jesus Christ is described as a day of redemption, a day to complete the process of redemption. The already not yet process will be completed at the second coming of Jesus Christ. What will occur there is God will complete his redemption of his people and he will also be redeeming the world. In Romans chapter 8, when Paul's describing creation, he personifies creation, gives it personality, and says that even the creation is longing for the revealing of the sons of God because it knows that when you are revealed in resurrection, rapture and resurrection, then the creation will also get a makeover or experience its own type of resurrection. All of this language of the second coming and the return of Christ is uh, kind of phrased in this language of redemption. The Bible is filled with this imagery of redemption. As I mentioned, we are studying it right now in the book of Ruth with the idea of a kinsman redeemer. In uh, scrolls and looking at this, uh, what this represents, I think most of you have heard that the majority of scholars believe that this represents the title deed to the earth. It represents a deed that can only be redeemed by a kinsman redeemer. Someone has to have the right and authority to open this scroll, break its seals, and then be able to finish a transaction that is linked to this imagery. Uh, Hebrew title deeds required a minimum of three witnesses and three separate seals, with more important transactions requiring more witnesses and seals. 
Uh, one writer says, but what is, what is this remarkable scroll? It is nothing less than the, the title deed to the earth itself. This is not explained in the immediate context, but it is clearly the antitype of all the rich typological teaching associated with the divinely specified procedures for land redemption in the Old Testament. So how does this work exactly? The Bible clearly teaches that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So how in the world would God need to buy back the earth if it already belongs to him? Why would there need to be a title deed to the earth and why would there need to be a redemption of a world that already belongs to God? Well, here's how this works. In the garden, God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the fish and the uh, crawling things and the birds of the sky. And man had dominion. And man had a usurper come into paradise and steal that dominion. Adam gave it up, as it were. He was kicked out of the garden. And he gave up that dominion by virtue of his sin. And he lost his position or their position as king and queen of the earth. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is called the god of this world. Some of you may wonder, how, how could Satan be the god of this world? I thought God made the world. God did make the world. It does belong to him. But in some sense, Adam lost it or gave up dominion to another usurper. He lost it. The land was given up. And this is what has occurred. Now, I'm going to show you a couple of places to dig this out. I want you to go to first to the book of Leviticus 25. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We'll spend a few moments looking at this idea of redemption and land uh, redemption and how this all works. Leviticus 25. Look at verse 23. Leviticus 25, 23. The land, moreover, 25, 23, shall not be sold permanently, for God says the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. 25, 25. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property. Then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Or in, ca in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means so as to find sufficient, uh, as to find sufficient for his, its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale, refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return his property. Here's the essence of it, and I, and I want you to go to Jeremiah uh, 32, and I'll explain the essence of this. So, if you owned land as an Israelite and somehow you lost the land, you became poor uh, all the way to the book of Jeremiah chapter 32 and you lost it. Even with that loss, it wasn't a permanent loss. It could still be redeemed by a kinsman. Here, I'll use the example of the land of Israel. The land of Israel belongs to God. Would you agree? Okay. However, through the centuries, has Israel always been in that land? The answer is no. In fact, there's a debate even today as to who has the right to Jerusalem. Should the capital of Israel be Jerusalem? Trump wants to move our, uh, what do you call it? Our embassy to Jerusalem. There's debate about that. It's become a hotbed of activity. And, and up until uh, our recent past, the Jews weren't even in the land. Did the land belong to God? Yes. 
But the people of Israel forfeited the land. How so? They did not recognize the time of their visitation. Their house was left to them desolate. Jesus walked out of the temple courts, you know, towards the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem fell in A.D. 70 and took them almost 2,000 years to get back in the land. Here's my point. The land was uh, lost for a time, but not permanently lost. The connection goes from the land of Israel to the world. Stay with me. The world belongs to God, so could never be permanently lost by the actions of Adam. But the world had to be redeemed by a kinsman who was worthy. That's why Jesus becomes human. He is the last Adam. He is the kinsman redeemer. He must become a man to buy back what Adam lost. So the second Adam, or the last Adam, becomes the kin for humanity, pays the redemption price, which is not silver and gold. He doesn't buy back the earth by silver and gold, but by his own what? Precious blood, which we're told in 1 Peter 1, 17 and following. Here's the imagery. Now, this is interesting as it ties to the land of Israel, going from kind of a, a type to the reality of the whole earth. Jeremiah 32, look at verse 6. Now, we do know from the book of Jeremiah that Israel's going into a captivity for extra credit. How many years? 70 years, right? We know it's going to happen. The book of Jeremiah has this background. And Jeremiah 32.6 is told, the word of the Lord comes to him, Jeremiah 32.7, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shulam, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord. And he said to me, buy my field, please, that is at Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin. This is in the promised land. For you have the right of possession, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Uh, verse 9. And I bought the field, which was at Anathoth, from Hanamel, my uncle's son. And I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. Let me just pause here for a second. How many of you have done a mortgage before? Raise up your hand. How many of you stopped looking at what you were signing about 15 minutes into the process? This one means this. This one, you could have signed your whole life away. Right? you got to sign like 5,700 times. This is for this. This is for that. Then what they do is they give you a copy of what you signed with the intention that you will go home and look at what you signed. Do you ever go home and look at what you signed? Some of you who are meticulous organizers, do do it. Oh, we're so proud of you. But for most of us, we take the little folder thing we put it somewhere, and that's it. How much do I got to pay per month? That's all I really need to know. I hope I still own this property, right? That's pretty much how it goes. Okay, so a second copy is made, and he, he says, uh, he's using the language of sealing. He says, 12, I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Maseah. 
in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I commanded Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar that they may last a long time. Why? Because they're going to go into captivity. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. After I, I had uh, given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, then I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power, and by thine outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for thee. Would you go back to Revelation 5? Here's the deal. Some of you may be wondering, well, when, when I hear people say that the, the scroll in the right hand of him who sat on the throne is the title deed of the earth, how do they know that? Yeah. Well, here's how we know. We start making connections to Jeremiah and Leviticus and other places, and we can see there's this common theme that runs through some of these transactions. And it, it could have to do with slaves, and it could have to do with land purchases. But what's really at the heart of this story is what's going to happen to planet Earth? Is it going to be redeemed? Think about it. This, this week I was reading a, a commentator, and he said, just think about it for a second. Think about if there was no Jesus. Just pause. Just ponder. Think about it. If there's no Jesus, what happens to this world? Where's it headed? What's going to happen? Well, what's, what's the question that's before us is, okay, is there someone who can redeem this place? You know, look around. You see what's happening, right? And we keep hoping some man's going to show up and fix it, but... I'm sure you've noticed, track record's not real great on people fixing this place. So Jesus is going to take center stage with this scroll, and uh, the transaction is the question, can it be transacted? In other words, can, can the earth experience a full redemption? Is there going to be a resurrection and a rapture? Is there going to be a regeneration of this planet? Will there be new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwells? Will there be a golden age? where we will experience what this world was supposed to be. Will Eden be restored? Those are the questions that linger over the text. Is there anyone worthy to open the scroll, break its seals, Revelation 5, verse 3? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or the scroll and to look into it. No one. The angel asked the question, who is worthy? And a universal search ensues heaven earth under the earth everywhere it's scoured the universe is searched is there someone worthy to do this right of redemption to buy back a planet that was lost by the sin of adam and eve is there anyone worthy and there's no one and so john remember has been catapulted into heaven in the spirit uh, he is seeing things but yet remains on the island of patmos um, He's seeing, you know, a glimpse into heaven. And when he hears what goes on and he knows what this title deed represents and he hears the proclamation and no one is found worthy, John begins to cry. Look at verse 4. It's, it's, he says, I, John, he's our author, began to weep greatly. The word greatly is polos in Greek. It means 
It was much weeping. It has the idea of large because no one was found worthy to open the book or the scroll or to look into it. The word weeping is a word that means to wail uncontrollably in despair. It's the same word used for when Jesus looked over Jerusalem and was weeping over the city because they had missed the time of their visitation. Great weeping. Why? Because John is thinking about the implications just like you a few moments ago thought about if there was no Jesus. What would happen to the planet? No one's found worthy and John begins to sob and cry and wail out loud and his reaction tells us a lot about the significance of this scroll and what it means to mankind, to the world. If this scroll and these seals can't be broken, then the world is doomed. If you like the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the kids begin to go into Narnia and they, they begin to find out why it's always cold and there's the, the white witch and everything, the response is that it's always winter and never Christmas here. And I wrote a tract around Christmas time to, to reach out with the gospel to people and using this image of the land of Narnia where it's always winter and never Christmas is how the world would be if there's no redemption. It will just continue in this spiral. The grave will never be satisfied. People are dying left and right. Sin will never be you know, fully dealt with. You, know, you can think of the implications, but we have really good news. That's not our story. Our Redeemer lives, right? And in my flesh, I will see God, says Job. And one of the elders said to me, and we don't know who the elders are, conjecture, maybe they're ancients, like uh, angels, maybe they are, uh, you know, the 12 apostles and the 12 patriarchs. Uh, interestingly enough, I was reading uh, a commentary by Morris, and he conjectured that maybe the one who shares this with uh, John is Judah, because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, just kind of interesting. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. This has the idea of a command. Stop crying, John. Behold, look, you missed something. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, from the line of David, has, past tense, overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Don't cry anymore, John. Hail, hail to the lion of Judah. How many of you remember it? How wonderful you are. Man, all of a sudden, he sees this lion. Again, I go back to the Chronicles of Narnia, right? The lion. Oh, I love it. Don't you love it when he eats the witch at the end of the movie? She's this evil, wicked thing, and he just... Yeah! It's good. Anyway... One is worthy. One has conquered. His name is Jesus. Take another look, John, because this one was prophesied. The scepter, Genesis 49.10, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He's the root of David. The, the scepter won't depart from the line of David and more specifically from the line of Judah. Take another look. The lion has conquered. Sometimes we look at the world, we look at what's going on, and we just want to cry. 
When we're discouraged, we need to see heaven again for what it says. Jesus has conquered. The banner of Judah was a lion, the king of the beasts, and Jesus Christ has conquered. And Shiloh, until Shiloh comes, probably means something like this, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. From the kingly lineage of the tribe of Judah, it's Davidic. You can write down Revelation twenty-two sixteen, the lineage or offspring of David. The Bible says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, what? Prince of Peace. And he will reign on David's throne, Luke 1.33, as the angel Gabriel tells Mary about her coming son. The Lord God will give him the throne of David. The rightful king has conquered. He's crowned with glory and honor. He tasted death for each one of us. And I saw, says John, verse 6, between the throne and the elders, with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb. Wait a minute, John. I thought that you were just told about a lion. Wouldn't you expect that the Bible would say, and I turned and I saw a lion. (laughs) But he turned and looked and he saw a lamb. A lamb standing as if slain, and notice, yet alive, it's standing, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, just remember, I'm going to go back to what I said at the beginning. The Bible is giving us symbolic language to describe spiritual realities with human terms, and sometimes done in symbolism. And so the number seven comes up in this book over and over again, And here's what this means. Seven horns, mark it down. Horns in the Bible speak of power, authority, and even military might. Seven eyes speak of omniscience, all-seeing. Here it's represented the Holy Spirit a few times in this book. And it speaks of omniscience. Here are two of the omni-attributes of God I mentioned on Sunday, if you were with us, from Psalm 139. God is all-knowing, omniscient, And he is omnipotent or all what? Powerful. These two omni-attributes are attributed to who here? Jesus Christ. Which means Jesus is God. See, when we say Jesus is God, we're not just pulling stuff out of the air, folks. Jesus has omni-attributes. All power, all knowledge, he is God. And you'll see some other things here in a second that will confirm that. But he is depicted as a lamb. Now in chapter 1, he's depicted in the garb of a high priest. Just a few moments ago, he's depicted as a lion. And now he's depicted as a lamb. Why? Because in order to buy your redemption, he had to become the lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Christ is our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He's a lamb, as it were, without spot or blemish who purchased us. How? With his own blood. So the image is appropriate to what's going on in the book. And I think that's why John sees what he sees. He sees a lamb as if slain. We've asked some questions about when we get to heaven, how will we see Jesus? Will he be dressed in high priestly garb? Will he have the 
kind of the notion of a lion, all power and authority, the king of the beasts? Will he be depicted in some way still as a lamb? Will he still have the scars? Is that what the Bible's talking about here? I don't think we should push this too far, but I think what we can say is this. He still had scars in his resurrection body. He invited Thomas, come and touch my hands, touch my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. And so it would appear that in his resurrection body, he still bears the scars of the cross. But here he's depicted as a lamb as if slain, but yet he's standing. A lamb as if it had been killed, but he's standing. What does John see exactly? I don't know, and I don't want to push it too far. But he sees an image of a lamb that's been taken to the slaughter. He was like a sheep led to the slaughter, Isaiah 53, 7, yet he did not open up his mouth, right? He was silent as a sheep is silent before it shears. So Jesus was, and yet he's standing I'll just throw this out. Maybe the idea of the resurrection here. Even though he was killed, he stands. The word resurrection in Greek literally means to stand up. And so even though he was slain, he stands. He's conquered sin and death is the image I think that we can go with here. He's standing, ready to go to work for his people. He was standing at the right hand of God when Stephen was stoned and saw him in heaven. He... uh, He looks as if he's been slain, remembering what he did to pay our redemption. He is strong. The seven horns, seven always is a number of completion or perfection. Seven eyes, he sees everywhere. I'm not going to go there tonight, but write down Zechariah 3, 8 and 9. Zechariah 4, 10. You'll see uh, seven eyes mentioned in these two texts that could have some relevance to this. Zechariah 3, 8 and 9. Speaking of... uh, Joshua, the high priest, and Zechariah 4.10, speaking of Zerubbabel, where it speaks of their eyes. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth, and the seven is there as well. And he came, this lamb, as, as if slain, verse 7. He came and he took it, that is the scroll, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So the scroll has been kind of the centerpiece. The lamb, which, you know, you might ask the question, how did John miss him? You know, do, you, do we sometimes miss Jesus? You see this heavenly scene and you see the scroll, but sometimes we seem to overlook Jesus in our troubles and our, our difficulty. Sometimes we're just weeping too much to see him, right? And we gotta, we gotta be able to look and see him. And Jesus marches up to the Father. And, you know, if you're one of the years, you're like, <gasps> who's worthy, right, to take this scroll? And he takes the scroll out of his right hand and the Father's, Good. Why? Because he's worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And I've got to show you one more. Go to the book of Daniel. Oh, this is good. The book of Daniel. So the book of Daniel is like the Old Testament revelation, right? And when, we, when I threw out, what book do you want to study? Almost half of you said Daniel, and the other half said Revelation. And the Revelation folks won, but we will get to Daniel in a future study. But Check this out. Now, I think this is a similar scene, maybe the same scene with a little less detail. Daniel 7, look at verse 13. I kept looking in the night vision, says Daniel, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Daniel 7, 13. He came up to the ancient of days, picture the father, and was presented before him. And to him, notice, was given, what's your Bible say? Dominion glory, 
and a kingdom, that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. I see that three times in verse 14. Which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This famous, back to Revelation 5, famous section, many of you have heard it before many times about the Son of Man from Daniel 7 may be depicting the same stuff as Revelation 5 with a little less detail, but dominion is being given to him. In other words, he is buying back, purchasing, completing the redemption of mankind. And so the significance of this moment is incredible. And it is going to cause heaven to break in to singing. How many of you enjoy singing, enjoy worship? Tonight, tonight's worship was beautiful, awesome. I feel like I'm often taken up to the throne room of God. Terry, get ready, if you would. Sometimes I'm, uh, if you've ever been to a stadium crusade with a lot of Christians there and worship begins to go up, man, it's, it's a beautiful thing. This video is a two-minute video of pastors in the rotunda in the Capitol building singing the doxology. I just wanted you to hear it because it gives you a little bit of a taste and it, it doesn't even compare to what's in the book. But Terry, would you, would you go ahead and play it? And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. They worship him right in front of God the Father. Is Jesus God? In Isaiah 42, 8, God said, I will not give my glory to another. Yet in Hebrews 1, the Father tells all the angels to worship Jesus. No one is supposed to be worshipped except God. An angel later in the book of Revelation says, don't bow down to me. I'm a fellow servant. Worship God. Jesus said to the devil, you shall worship the Lord your God alone and serve him. Right in front of the Father, Jesus Christ is worshiped by the angels and some of the most powerful angels ever created. Jesus ain't no angel. Jesus is God. Second person of the Holy Trinity. I know it's a bit mysterious and a little hard to wrap our puny brains around, but we're talking about God. Amen? We're talking about the one who spoke the universe into existence. And when he took the scroll, and everybody knows what this means, 
Man, look at what happens. These four cool creatures with eyes all around and wings and so forth. Man, they bow down. The 24 elders fall down before the Lamb. They worship Jesus right in front of the Father. And if the elders are angels, or we know the four living creatures are some sort of seraphim or cherubim, they have harps. And here, for all you musicians, is something potentially cool. Apparently, angels play guitar. Hmm? Now, you thought some guitar players were good. I'd like to hear an angel do a little bit of... <laughs> anyway, that's just me. Each of them have a harp, by the way. The word harp is kathara in Greek. It denotes a 10-string instrument, something like a lyre, L-Y-R-E, or a harp, or a guitar. They have... Instruments in their hand, which means instruments apparently are going to be in heaven, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Music and incense and worship and angels falling down and before the Lamb in front of the Father. And David says, may my prayer be as incense. Let it be counted as incense before the Psalm 142, verse 2. The lifting of my, of my hands as the evening sacrifice. In the book of Ezekiel, uh, excuse me, Exodus, there's something called an altar of incense. It's right outside the Holy of Holies, right next to the Ark of the Covenant. It's supposed to be kept going, incense going up to God, and it's a picture of the prayers of the people of God. What prayers are going up before God? In one of the prayers that we all know well, Jesus taught us to pray in this fashion. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. For 2,000 years, the people of God have been praying for the kingdom of God to come. And in some sense, those prayers have been stored up in the halls of heaven, if you will, or right before the throne of God. It's been prayed for 2,000 years, and the prayers are coming up before God because the moment has come for the kingdoms of this world to become the kingdoms of our Christ. And so, the son taking the scroll out of the father's hand one writer says is an act of indescribable sublimity or grandeur. That literally sets into motion the rest of the events of the book of Revelation. As a result of that action, false religion will be judged, wicked men will be slain, Antichrist will be destroyed, Satan will be vanquished, death will be defeated, the curse will be lifted, and the earth will be made new. Righteousness and justice will become a reality in the earth. The true heir will take back what is rightfully his and the usurper will be out. The seventh angel will sound, and loud voices arose in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. And so they sang a new song, verse 9. And they said, Worthy art thou to take the book, this is the angels and the 24 elders, all that are there, to take the scroll and to break its seals, verse 9, for thou wast slain, None other than Jesus being addressed and did purchase for God with thy blood men from how many? Every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Many psalms that I could give you, but just in rapid fire. Psalm 33, 4 says, Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Psalm 40, verse 4 says, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see, fear, and trust in the Lord. Psalm 96, verse 1 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Psalm 98, verse 1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand 
and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. Who is worthy? Jesus is worthy. And every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people, we'll see in Revelation 7, are before the throne, dressed in white. Palm branches are in their hand, and they are singing to our Lord. And thou, he says in verse 10, they say, thou hast made them as they worship the, the Lamb with musical instruments and song and praise. Thou hast made them, or us, New King, New King James, to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. We are going to experience a millennial reign of Christ, more of that in chapter 20. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads. The word a myriad in Greek can either mean 10,000 or ten thousands of ten thousands here because it's myriads of myriads. It's an innumerable number. How many angels are there? More than we could count. And there's, on top of that, thousands of thousands. It's an innumerable number. Many angels around the throne. The living creatures, uncountable. And they all said with a loud voice. Now, heaven apparently can get loud. <laughs> huh? It's all right. I know we like our reflective songs and we like that. But it's okay to praise the Lord with some loud shouts. We do it at the Dodger game. We should be able to do it to our God. Heaven's going to get loud at least at times. Hopefully it'll be quiet down at other times because as I get older, I say, turn that down. Can I get a witness? Anyway. But I'll have new ears in heaven, so it won't even matter. Saying with a loud voice, worthy, here's what they say. Worthy is the lamb, this is our title, that was slain to receive seven things. Seven is significant in Revelation. Power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Do not fear, brothers and sisters. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Amen? There's a ton of angels. And they, there needs to be a ton because some of you need multiple caravans of them just to keep an eye on you. But anyway, verse 13. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth, on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, God the Father, God the Son, being worshipped together because they are one, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The choir began in uh, verse 8, with 28 voices, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, but quickly it grows to a choir of uncountable numbers. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 150. I'm going to ask Shane to come up. He's going to end us in some worship, which is very appropriate. Psalm 150. I was reading Henry Morris. He said, there's considerable evidence that Psalms 146 through 150 refer to this scene in our Bibles. I'll let you study that out. But I'm just going to take you to the very last psalm in the Psalter, which is just another way of saying the book of Psalms is called the Psalter. Psalm 150, the final psalm. Let's read it together. And if you are physically able, would you stand to your feet right now with your Bible or your device in your hand? And I'm reading from the New American Standard. If you want to read with me, feel free. Here's what it says. Psalm 150 says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. 
Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals, all the drummers said. Amen. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath. Ready? Praise the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.